Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. It can be very frustrating reading particularly about the best known autism theories because just about every one of them is centered around the deficits of those on the spectrum. However, not all theories are this way. And on this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Fergus Murray about monotropism. And he explains why this theory could be a much better way of understanding and supporting autistic people. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Fergus, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Wanted to start by learning where does your story in the autism community begin? Long way back. Um, when I was, I guess in my early teens, my mum was learning about autism. She'd just, she'd finished her PhD, which was on the relationship between language and thinking, um, to do with relevance theory. And she read a book, she read a book by Uta Frith, I think, a Autism Explaining the Enigma, or something along those lines, and uh, concluded that they really haven't explained the enigma, but she was pretty sure that she could. So she learned all about autism. I kind of grew up with her formulating theories of autism and meeting various autistic people. Like she had a, a non-speaking autistic friend called Ferenc Virag for many years. I mean, they're still in touch. I got to know Wen Lawson. So we have autistic people uh, sort of passing through the house for, for years and years. So yeah, I kind of grew up with that. And it wasn't until much later that I came to think that I probably was autistic myself. Known for a long time that my thinking sort of tended that way. But I didn't think that I was diagnosably autistic until my late 20s, and I wasn't formally diagnosed until the age of 31. And that was 10 years ago now. So many of the best-known theories about autism seem to be centered around the deficits for those on the spectrum. How do you, as an autistic person, feel about that? I think it's very unhelpful. And I think it's very misleading, because most of the things which are framed as deficits are only a problem some of the time and have advantages as well. And I think it's really important to understand that for you know anyone who cares about an autistic person and perhaps especially for autistic people ourselves. Because what happens when you get an autism diagnosis is you go on learn about autism probably by reading books by non-autistic experts and listening to non-autistic experts and most of what you learn is about autism as a problem. You don't hear very much about the intensity of autistic experience and how that can be a source of extreme joy as well as great difficulty. Um, if you learn about the difficulties that some autistic people have with executive functioning, you don't understand that that's kind of the flip side of something which also leads us to hyper-focusing and all of these really quite joyful things. I think it's, it's very bad for autistic people's mental health that autism is overwhelmingly framed as a deficit. And I think it's just very misleading. 
Now, you are also a science teacher. From the perspective of science, how do you feel about these deficit-based framing of autism? It's an understandable tendency in the psychological science to look at things as problems and to only primarily be interested in problems. And I think that's a big part of where this framing comes from. You know, psychologists step in when something goes wrong. And that's how we come to understand differences. So, you know, the, the way that scientists came to realise that autism is a thing was by seeing these kids, it was mainly kids, who really struggled with certain things. Tried to account for the differences that they've seen in terms of deficits, in terms of what could be wrong with these kids that was leading them to you know, get stuck in loops of behaviour um, that was preventing them from connecting with people around them. And they tended to look at the individual in isolation, essentially, um, or to assume that all of the problems were with the individual, where a fuller understanding means taking into account all of the social context that somebody is embedded in. You know, um, people talk about autistic people lacking empathy, for example. But empathy is a two-way thing. Communication is a two-way thing, right? It, it's not something that someone does on their own. It's something that someone does with someone else. And the way that psychologists have historically looked at it is to only consider the possibility that any deficits might be in the person. So rather than looking for mismatches between the communication styles of different people, they assume that any problems are the problem of the autistic person. Which is, as I say, it's understandable in kind of history of science terms, but it's not good science. It's just leaving out a whole massive class of explanations. And um, if you look at the way that scientists still tend to talk about autism in um, you know, research papers about it, they frame everything as a deficit. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll have autistic people lying less in a test and just being really honest with people and the paper will report it as an honesty de a, a dishonesty deficit. That's, that's the kind of thing. And it's not neutral. You know, scientists like to think that they're being very neutral, but actually if you kind of stop and break it down, they're applying value judgments to things which don't necessarily justify them. I read an absolutely fantastic article you wrote in which you stated that there's one explanation about autism that has been largely overlooked, but comes much closer to explain the experiences of autistic people, and that is monotropism. For those that aren't aware, what is monotropism, and why do you feel that it is a much better theory? Thanks. So, monotropism is... The theory of autism, which my mother worked out when, while I was growing up, that's Dinah Murray. Essentially, it frames autism as being about interests. Um, it sees the mind as an interest system. So things that we're interested in attract our attention. And they attract our processing resources more broadly. So the difference in autistic people, according to the theory of monotropism, is that we are more monotropic. That is to say that we clump our attention 
we focus it all in one direction at a time, most of the time. So if we're paying attention to somebody's mouth moving, then we might find it difficult to also take in the words that are coming out of it and what the rest of their face is doing and social context, for example. Um, we tend to hyper-focus so that uh, if we're very interested in something, it will just consume all of our attention and you know there might be someone standing there trying to talk to us we're busy with, you know, our, our minds are just fully engaged with what we're doing. In various ways, it explains all the prominent features of autistic experience and the differences in autistic processing um, in a way that I just don't think that any other theory of autism ever has. Why do you think that there is not more knowledge to the general public about monotropism? It's a good question. Part of it is that it was not a theory that was formulated by academic psychologists. My mother, as I mentioned, has a, has a PhD in psycholinguistics, which is you know not a million miles away from psychology, but she wasn't a research psychologist. She wasn't a clinical psychologist. The fact that she was formulating this theory together with Mike Lesser, who was a, a mathematician, and Wen Lawson, um, who was an autistic adult with, at that time, uh, no academic qualifications to speak of, meant that none of them had the kind of institutional power to get people to listen, even though they were, were talking at conferences and um, they did publish in 2005 in the journal Autism, which at the time seemed like a, a major breakthrough. You know, It was showing that at least some people were taking their work seriously. But, you know, you have big names in the autism world, like Simon Baron-Cohen, um, like Frankie Happy, who have had theories that they formulated about autism and the academic clout to not just get people to listen, but to get, you know, grad students to work on demonstrating things about their formulation. And... Partly that's about you know, them being senior academics, and partly it's a matter of them just knowing how to play the game of academic psychology. Uh, here were three almost complete outsiders putting forward this theory, which challenged some very basic things about how people understood autism. It wasn't coming from this deficit-based framing. So there are certainly disadvantages to a monotropic processing style, but it's not inherently bad. It's not inherently any worse than the alternative. The alternative. It has definite advantages. So in a world which had been seeing autism as a problem, as a disorder, as a set of deficits, it, it was you know, seen as kind of outlandish. The discourse around autism has come on a long way since then. And I think that's part of the reason why monotropism is now coming to be more widely accepted. Monotropism can help explain some key features of autism, starting with autistic inertia. Many times the inertia is described as executive function. So what's, what's your opinion on that phrasing? 
um, dysfun because dysfunction would be again uh, phrased as a deficit. So the idea of this executive dysfunction is a useful shorthand for describing some of the difficulties that autistic people have. Um, so it, it's not that I, I never use the phrasing, but I, I'm never completely comfortable about it because, yeah, as you say, it implies that it's just a problem, which I don't think it necessarily is. So a basic feature of monotropism is that we put our attention in one place, right? We put our processing resources in one or sometimes a small number of interests at a time. So whichever interests are aroused, they get almost all of our processing power. So in terms of inertia, it, it think of pushing a heavily loaded shopping trolley. You know, you can't turn a corner quickly without risking things falling over. And actually, that, it, that's quite a good analogy for what happens to autistic people when we are suddenly expected to change tack completely when we're in the middle of something. So rather than seeing it as dysfunction, I think that our tendency to focus intensely and for, for sustained periods has advantages and disadvantages. It's a different cognitive style. Sensory sensitivities are, are very common in autistic people, and it's generally thought that it's easier for people to process one sensory channel at a time. Does monotropism have any theories about why this is the case? Right. Again, it's about our tendency for our processing resources to be focused. So there are a few things that follow from this. Because we throw all of our processing resources in one place a lot of the time, senses tend to be very sensitive when we're focusing on them. And they tend to be less sensitive than other people's when we're not. It's, it's a bit more complicated than this because part of this is... Uh, the whole development of a person. So as we're growing up, you know, we pay more attention to some of our senses than others. And I think that senses that we pay more attention to tend to be developed at the expense of others. So you'll get autistic adults who are just very bad at sensing their internal senses, for example, because they just never got into the habit of paying very much attention to them. Um, or we might be acutely sensitive in hearing things, um, which I'm theorizing is because we have always paid a lot of attention to our, our sense of hearing. So, you know, the, the more we practice a modality, the more sensitive it becomes, broadly speaking, which shouldn't be a big surprise. You know, that's something that you can observe outside of autism. Um, it's generally understood that this happens with senses. Um, and of course, the, the single single channel processing thing, it's just pretty much at, at the heart of monotropism. Um, we, our brains are set up to process one thing at a time or a small number of things at a time so that it's very difficult to integrate sensory information from multiple modalities, you know, from multiple senses at the same time. Like what I was talking about earlier with communication. If we're trying to integrate body language and facial expressions and verbal communication and tone of voice and 
at the same time as that, holding on to all of the social context that we're embedded in, it's just very difficult. It, it tends to be much harder for autistic people than it is for other people. So one aspect of monotropism that I find interesting is that it states that social differences are sensory differences at its root. How does the ability to process multiple channels of input affect these differences? Communication is a complex business. Most people expect other people to be taking in multiple channels of information at any time while holding on to background context, context and at the same time expressing themselves through words and facial expressions and body language in common socially acceptable ways. Most autistic people just can't juggle that many balls at once. Something's got to fall. So that's why you get autistic people often with quite flat affect. And it's to say, we talk in a monotone and we maybe don't modulate our pitch very well. Um, not all, all autistic people do that, of course. Um, many of us learn, you know, learn that stuff by observation or by having it carefully explained to us and by practice. But not all of us ever do. And, you know, some of us are really good at eye contact after a bit of practice, but many of us will never get that. And um, because of the multi-channel processing thing, eye contact can be a very intense experience and that just prevents us from adequately processing anything through any other channel. So, you know, a lot of autistic people, if you insist that they look you in the eye, they won't be able to hear the words that you're saying and make sense of them. Now, thinking about interest or focused interest, how does monotropism look at that compared to maybe some more popular theories of autism that talk about these interests as restrictive or repetitive? Right, so interests are really pretty central to the monotropism account. We talk about the mind as an interest system, I, I said earlier. The idea is that a big part of the way that human minds are structured is in terms of interests, um, things which pull our attention in. For autistic people, our interests tend to be intense. They tend to pull in our attention more intensely. And they tend to be more fixed, although that's certainly not always the case. I know quite a lot of autistic people, and I'd count myself one of, one of them, who have many, many interests. So the, the idea that we have restricted interests, it works for some of us, not for all of us. But we do tend to have intense interests. Again, I don't want to generalise too much because I, I know that some autistic people say that they don't think they have particularly intense interests at all, but it's always been a diagnostic criterion. Uh, it's always been a feature of accounts of autism. But it's really very poorly accounted for at all in most of the other theories of autism. So there's the theory of executive dysfunction being the, the fundamental feature of autism, which, unless you understand executive function differencing, sorry, unless you understand executive functioning differences in terms of monotropism, then I don't see how it accounts for a tendency towards intense, focused, or even restricted interests at all, really. I mean, is it implies a difficulty changing mindset. So there's that. But 
yeah, doesn't really get us there. Um, the relationship between theory of mind and interests is anybody's guess. Um, it's not at all clear how intense focused interests would follow from uh, an impaired theory of mind. Um, I, I, I guess the idea is that because we, we're not so good at people, we get really interested in other things, but that doesn't really account for the intensity of it, or the fact that autistic people who actually you know, gain really quite good social skills still tend to have very intense fixed interests. I think theories are important about autism from from the perspective of them being useful, being able to be put into practice in supporting autistic people. In thinking about monotropism, what are some key takeaways that can be useful in supporting autistic people in their day-to-day lives? Uh, there are so many things. Um, one is just the importance of our interests, our passions in well-being. When Lawson wrote a book called The Passionate Mind, which is their account, his account of how monotropism explains autistic experience, essentially. Um, but special interests are often pathologized. You know, they're treated as a problem with an autistic person, rather than recognizing that passions are just one of the things that makes life worth, worth living for everybody. And that's probably even more true for autistic people for whom passions are often an ex- escape from a world which is often bewildering and exhausting. So there's that. There's the fact that autism is not that mysterious once you understand it in these terms. So, you know, for, for decades, autism has been treated as an enigma. Um, you know, we've had puzzle piece logos used to represent autism as if it's just this massive puzzle. What even is happening here? And I think that the the most established theories of autism have not really helped very much. They leave a lot of unanswered questions. Um, the lens of monotropism and the mind as an interest system helps to make sense of all of it. And I think that's really, really important because one of the things which causes autistic people the most suffering is not being understood. I mean, this is, you know, it's a problem for everyone in the world, right? We all need to feel understood. We need to connect with people. And for a lot of autistic people, their families are mostly not autistic. Their schoolmates, their teachers, their employers are mostly not autistic. And they often find it very difficult getting a handle on what's going on with a person. So, you know, understanding that someone's likely to be experiencing things very intensely, um, understanding that it's likely to take some time for us to change tack, and that's not because we don't want to necessarily, Um, it's just because it's like trying to steer a tanker. Understanding the, the centrality of the difficulty of processing multiple channels really helps a lot to um, make sure that sensory environments are not too overwhelming, to make sure that um, instructions are clear, to just 
ensure that you know things are getting through. Um, again, uh, understanding about how difficult filtering can be for autistic people. I, I, I'm not sure that I've adequately explained why that follows from monotropism, but I think it does. Um, so, you know, filtering out sounds and lights and so on takes energy. And that means that it's tiring and it means that if you're already tired, it becomes that much harder. And that's just an extremely useful thing to understand. It helps to understand that we're going to keep on returning to things. It's difficult to let things drop. And, I mean, so much follows from that. Again, there's the, the way that our, our so-called special interests work follows from that. But also, uh, loops, loops of concern. Part of the reason why autistic people are so prone to anxiety is because we get stuck in these loops of like, oh no, what if, uh, but what if that, and maybe this. Um, the way that I see it is that because the, the tracks we leave in our minds are more strongly worn, we tend to follow the same tracks again and again compared with most people. Conversely, if we don't have reminders of things and they're probably not directly related to our special interests, then we're liable to completely forget about them because our attention just isn't there and we can't keep it going on the back burner in the way that other people seem to be able to. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the biggest thing is just realising that it is possible to make sense of autistic experiences. They don't have to be totally mysterious, even if you're not autistic. But if you're not autistic, then you should also understand that you're going to have difficulty understanding the experiences of autistic people, at least as much as they're going to struggle to understand yours. Absolutely. Fergus, I really appreciate your time. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Doug. I hope that was helpful. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you so much to Fergus for the conversation. Learning about monotropism has been of value to me because supporting autistic people is my special interest, and this is just another important step in moving in the direction of understanding and support. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, you can do that by emailing doug.bletcher at Autism Personal Coach or call or text 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Kim Clary about eating disorders for those on the spectrum. Talk to you then. Comprehend